Several years ago, I was talking to uh, Jared Farrens about worshiping while you're driving and how uninhibited we are when we're just driving by ourselves. And he, he confessed that when he's driving down the road and that song, How Great Is Our God, comes on, he just belts it out like he's the only one on the planet. Just in this six foot seven guy, and, the, and he used to have this little, was it a Corolla? I don't think he's, here, he's not here, but a little Toyota Corolla drive back and forth through the bank, and he's just belting out how great is our God at the top of his lungs. And I asked him to do it one day at church, and he said no. Um, maybe next time he'll become less inhibited. So last week, uh, last week we began looking at the words of Jesus, and a lot of those teachings, specifically the ones we went over, were uh, hard to hear, difficult to, to hear and to heed for some people, and they cause conviction, and in some people they even cause repentance. The teachings that we went over last week were, um, you know, started out Matthew 6, we went to the, the prayer that Jesus uh, talked to his disciples about, and and then he says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, not if, but when, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you, your sins. So some pretty difficult teachings that, uh, that we heard last week. The road to destruction in Matthew 7 is broad and many find it. You know? and, and then the teaching directly following that little passage of Scripture found in Matthew 7 as well, where it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I spent a good deal of time addressing some biblical doctrines, some Jesus teachings that uh, are hard to accept. Um, sometimes people will hear these things and say, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. I've actually had people say, if being a Christian means that, then I'd rather go to hell. I don't believe they know what they're saying when they say that, but they said it. Because these teachings that Jesus throws out here in Scripture sometimes can make us just really get down to the root of things. And I don't want every Sunday, you know, when you guys come here, every Sunday to be this walking away uh, of remorse or, or solemn nature. There's a time for joy as well. Um, I talked to a guy on Wednesday night, and, and we had a team dinner, and he says, man, I'm going to be coming to your church one of these days. He goes, I like hellfire and brimstone. That's how I grew up in the South, and everybody's too sugar-coated nowadays. I said, well, I agree with you on the sugar-coated part, and I can do a little hellfire and brimstone occasionally. Just <laughs> I've got that in me, but that's not what it's going to be this morning. Okay, We're not going to talk about hellfire and brimstone this morning. We're going to talk about teachings uh, about Christ that give us hope and that uh, give us encouragement that we live for him and we live with him, and we live in him. So we're going to go to some scriptures, and we're going to start out in teachings uh, in the book of Romans, and then we'll get into some of the gospel teachings of Jesus' the red letters. But starting out in the book of Romans, and I thought we were going to talk about Jesus. Well, we are talking about Jesus when we get into the book of Romans, and I hope this is a very educational message for you as well, because uh, the more I studied it, the more encouraged I got. But about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, our church body went through a study of the, the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 16. We went through a very detailed scripture study, and it was the first time in my preaching career I had ever started a subject and actually finished it with some help of uh, several other people that were preaching. But this Romans passage starts out where Paul is talking about 
how he is a servant and a slave, and, and he's writing this letter to the saints in Rome, and then he goes on to talk about how God's wrath is there for mankind because they don't believe in him, and they have no excuse because nature, how great is our God, right? Nature has, has shown what God has made, and so we have no excuse not to submit to him and make him our Lord. And then he talks about his righteous judgment. His judgment is right. It's not wrong, and he's faithful. And then he goes on to talk about righteousness by faith, and it's by faith we are saved. It's not through the works of the law. And he uses Abraham as an example, and he says, you know, Abraham was justified before the law even came. He was considered righteous before the Mosaic law was even written. So you Jews have to stop using Moses or, or, or Abraham as a law-keeping uh, pillar for yourselves. That he, he was justified long before that. And then he talks about how there's peace and, and joy in Christ and how, how, how sin came into the world uh, through Adam and, and, and life comes through Christ, uh, eternal life comes through Christ. And then he says, you know, don't you remember you were dead to sin, but through Christ you are now made alive and that you've been freed from sin. And he talks about their baptism in Romans 6. And then he goes on to talk about how marriage is an example of, of law and faith or law and grace. And he, he's, he's going through this Roman road, as they call it. And then he gets to Romans 8, and it's just the most beautiful passage, I think, in the Scriptures. One of the most beautiful passages in the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and he just got done talking about the law is at work, and I'm, I'm a wretched man, and I, and I struggled, and I had, this, I had this, uh, this bondage to sin. And that word, that word bondage means being the state of, uh, of subservience or being a slave to someone or something. And... When he says here in, in Romans 8, 1, he, he gets done saying all these things, and what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So remember, we're talking about Jesus and the words of Jesus. And then in Romans 8, 1, he says, Therefore, all this has been heard, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For the, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So he's saying there is no condemnation, there is no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus... Those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from the law of sin and death. You see, there is a, there's this freedom from sin and death that comes in Christ, and we're all slaves to something. You are either slaves to the bondage of Jesus and the bondage of God, or you're slaves to the bondage of sin and death. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul calls himself a servant. If you look at Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, who is loved by God, and he calls himself a servant. And that word servant in the Greek is doulos. And it means voluntary or involuntary in the sense of being subservient or subject to something or someone. To enslave or to bring under bondage to make a servant. And that word slave or servant is used over 115 times in the New Testament. Just in that, just in that, that, that context. There's several words for slave and servant used in different Greek words, but that one word doulos is over 115 times in the New Testament. And a majority of the time, or many of the times that it's used, it's used in the sense that 
You have the law of slavery, the slave to sin, or the slave to Christ. So we're going to talk about this bondage, this bondage to God being a good thing, the bondage to being enslaved to someone or subservient to someone in God. And Jesus talks about that in the book of Matthew. And we, we looked in Matthew uh, last week, and we're going to look at the positive natures of the being in bondage and why it's a good thing. Now, Jesus in Matthew 11 is talking to the Galileans. He's in Galilee. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the crowds. And in Matthew 11, chapter 25, it starts out. At that time, Jesus said, now, my goal, and when I was reading this, I did everything I possibly could to close my eyes and put myself as one of the disciples or one of the crowds that was with Jesus at that moment. I was standing there, I was sitting there with Jesus, and I'm hearing him speak, the creator of the universe, and he says, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. He is teaching them, but he starts out by praying to the Father, by praising the Father. There's, this th there's these three sections of this passage that we're going to look at. And this first section is Jesus is standing there with the disciples and with the crowds. And he says, I praise you, Father. His first acknowledgement in this section is giving praise to God the Father. And then the second one, when he says here, he says, Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. And then he switches over to verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. So now I believe he's talking to the crowds and he's talking to the disciples and he says, praise, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, because you are heaven, of earth, heaven and earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and learning revealed to them. This was for your good pleasure, Father. And now he switches to talking to the disciples and he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Remember in Matthew 28, he says, uh, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. God has given me all authority. All authority has been given to me, is what Jesus said in the end of Matthew. All authority is given to me. And then he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. You've got to think about who he's talking to here. He's talking to these Jewish people who understand, I believe, the significance of, God, of Jesus saying, all things have been committed to me by God the Father. This is the same God the Father that created the universe. And Jesus too. This is the same God the Father that called Abram, Abraham. This is the same God the Father that in Exodus 14, when they, they left Egypt and they were going into the promised land and the, the Red Sea split and they're worried and they're like, oh my gosh, they're, they're going to kill us and we should have gone back. We could have got food and we could have had water back there. We could have everything we needed. And yet you bring us through this, this big river, this big sea, and they're going to kill us. And it says the angel of God went before them and behind them. And after that, they put all of their faith in the Lord and they put all their faith in Moses, his servant. This is the same group of people that recognize the Torah in the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they, they recognize this is the God that he's talking about. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to the crowds. And he says, all things have been committed to me by God. No one knows the Son except the Father. And listen to this. And no one knows the Father except the Son. 
No one knows God except me and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So can you imagine sitting in this group and this Jesus who's performed miracles at this point, he's preaching, he's this loving figure that Hebrews 1, I don't want to misquote it, but Hebrews 1 says he is the exact representation. It says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It says the Son, God, is, is the exact representation of God's glory. And so these people are sitting around Jesus and he says, no one knows the Father except me. Except me and who I choose to reveal him. Do you think maybe they're starting to pay attention to what he's saying at that point? They're either thinking this guy is crazy, insane, or this is someone I need to pay attention to. Because the God, the Father that he's talking about is the same one that gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, who then gave to Israel. He promised in Deuteronomy 28 the blessings that come from obedience. I mean, this is Jesus, who Jesus is saying, the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I can reveal the Father to you. But listen to what I'm going to tell you next. They had all these laws. They knew that if they were disobedient to these laws, it was suffering. They knew the pain that came, the struggle that came, the burden that came from the laws and regulations. And I'm not saying anything bad about, I'm saying, I'm repeating what the word says about the law. They were a burden. They were the slavery of the Israelite people. And Jesus says, next, listen to this. He's talking to us, but he's, all, he's talking to the people in the crowd, but he's talking to us. This is a divine word. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's there. It's for us. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Where's my book? I had a commentary book. How did I forget that? Titus. Car. What do you call it? Dashboard. Passenger seat. Hurry up. Go get it. Come on. All who are, I can't believe I, can't believe I forgot that. It was like, I, you can't rewrite some things better than they're written before, right? It's like trying to redo scripture. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it in a different verse. No, the, the writings that God gave was perfect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's divine. It's inspired. And sometimes when you have a commentator that writes certain things about the scriptures, you go, I, I, can't, I can't improve on this. So I'm going to plagiarize, and instead of, writing it like I wrote it. I'm not. I'm just going to read. Thank you, son. I'm just going to read what this guy wrote. Barclay wrote this, and it's just powerful passage um, about this passage. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the teaching that Jesus, who Colossians says, all things were created through him, by him, and for him. He was there in the beginning, the spirit, the water. He spoke things into existence. And he's, he's recognizing, he says, look, the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I can reveal him to you as well. And now they're starting to sit on the edge of the seats going, I'm going to listen to this. And then he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Have you ever been weary or burdened? 
many, many, many times. But what I think Jesus is talking about here, this author really hits hard on. And I'm going to highlight this. To the Jew, he's talking to a group of Jews here. To the Jew, religion was a thing of endless rules and regulations, all of which had to be observed. A man lived his life in a forest of rules and regulations which dictated every action of his life. He must listen forever to the voice which continually said, Thou shalt not. Even the rabbi saw this. He goes on to talk about the great-grandson of Levi, whose name was Korah, found in the book of Numbers and found in Exodus. And if you remember, Korah rebelled. 249 of these other priests rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And, and I think it's number 16, isn't it? Is that right? I think it's number 16. I don't think I ran, wrote it down here. But, but Korah rebelled against him. But this is something that in, in, in lore of Jewish history, Korah had written, and he wrote this. Korah, which shows how binding and constructing and burdensome and impossible demands of the law could be. There was a poor widow in my neighborhood who had two daughters in a field. This was supposedly written by Korah, this priest, in some other writings uh, outside of the scriptures. There was a poor widow in my neighborhood who had two daughters in a field. When she began to plow, Moses, i.e. the law of Moses, said, You must not plow with an ox and an ass together. When she began to sow, he said, You must not sow your field with mingled seed. When she began to reap and to make stacks of corn, he said, Take not the gleaning or what you forget, Deuteronomy 24, or the corners, Leviticus 19. She began to thresh, and he said, Give me the heave offering, and the first, and the second tithe. She accepted the ordinance and gave them all to him. What did the poor woman then do? She sold her field, bought two sheep, and clothed herself with the fleece to have profit from their young. When they bore their young, Aaron i.e. the demands of the priesthood, came to her and said, Give me the firstborn. So she accepted the decision and gave them to him. When the shearing time came and she sheared them, Aaron said, Give me the first fruit of the fleece, Deuteronomy 18. Then she thought, I cannot stand up against this man. I will slaughter the sheep and eat them. Then Aaron came and said, Give me the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw, Deuteronomy 18. Then she said, Even then, when I have killed them, I am not safe from you. Behold, I will call them devoted. Then Aaron said, in that case, they belong entirely to me. He took them and went away and left her weeping with her two daughters. The story is a parable of the continuous demands that the law made upon men in every action and activity of life. The demands of the law were indeed a burden. One man's commentary. When he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my yoke, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So we have this burden that we see in the Old Covenant, and we have Jesus, who's claiming, another point says, I am, claiming to be God, and he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so there's another story that this writer talks about as far as lore about yokes. You guys know what a yoke is. Anybody that grew up on a farm knows what a yoke is. It's that, it's that big wood thing that they put around the oxen and then they, they drive them, right? So this is another thing that it said about this, uh, this passage. 
The Jew used the phrase, the yoke, for entering into submission to something. The yoke. They spoke of the yoke of the law, the yoke of the commandments, the yoke of the kingdom, and the yoke of God. But it may well be that Jesus took the words of his invitation from something much nearer home than that. He says, my yoke is easy. The word easy in the Greek can mean several things. It can mean useful. It can mean better. It can mean easy. It can mean good. It can mean gracious. It can mean kind. It could also mean well-fitting. It can mean well-fitting. The word easy in the Greek... Christos, which can mean well-fitting. In Palestine, ox yokes were made of wood. The ox was brought and the measurements were taken. The yoke was then roughed out and the ox was brought back to have the yoke tried on. The yoke was then carefully adjusted so that it would fit well and would not gall the neck of the patient's beast. The yoke was tailor-made to fit the ox. Now there is a legend that Jesus made the best ox yokes in all Galilee and that from all over the country men came to him to the carpenter's shop to buy the best yokes that skill could make. Can you imagine Jesus? Like, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, if Jesus was our trim carpenter, like you wouldn't need paint grade. <laughs> Everything would be stain grade and there'd be no putty. It would all be cut perfectly. It would be precise and perfect. Everything would be exactly as it was called to be and designed to be. Jesus, the perfect carpenter. So when he says, my yoke is easy, this legend was that he was a, a yoke maker. In those days, as now, shops had their signs above the door. And it has been suggested that the name of the sign above the door of the carpenter shop in Nazareth, Nazareth may well have said this, quote, my yokes fit well. Now that's a cute story. But there's so much to that. My yokes fit well. It may well be that Jesus is here using a picture from the carpenter shop in Nazareth where he had worked throughout these silent years. My yoke fits well, Jesus says. What he says is, the life I give you to live is not a burden to gall you. Your task, your life is made to measure to fit you. Whether or not this is a bad interpretation, I'm going to take it. Because there's so much to teach here out of this scripture. Out of this passage where Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And now we're going to get to personal. We're going to get to Nate or to Brenda or to Ryan, Robin, every one of us. When Jesus says, there's something I have created for you individually and perfectly. Because every ox is different. Everybody's different. Everybody has different skills, different gifts, different personalities, a different heart, different desire, different compassion, different empathy, whatever it is. But every single one of us have gifts that can glorify the Father. And we've got all these things in the Old Testament. God says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's just a burden on us. But God says, I've got something better for you. I have an ox, a yoke that I can put on you. I can put this yoke on you. Custom fit to you, Allison. Custom fit that's going to fit you perfectly. So that you can use it to glorify God. And it's not hard. It's not burdensome. 
It's glorious. It's going to fit well. It's going to fit perfectly. It's easy. It's not heavy. It's not harmful. If it was, why would Paul be in prison glorifying God? Was he crazy? No. He was so filled with the Spirit that he knew if I do what God wants me to do, I'm going to step in line with the Spirit. It's going to guide me. It's going to fit me perfectly. And I think that's what God is saying here. It's that it's, it's just... I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, I am meek, I know what I've created you for. And these lies that are out there right now, that are telling you that it's harder to be a Christian. No, I used to think that, I'm like, no, no, no. It's just, it's better. It's better to do things God's way. If we don't do them God's way, that's when we start feeling the pain, and that's when we start going, who of you is weary and burdened? And we see Peter and John in Acts chapter 5 or 6 where they're just being, they just got persecuted. And what do they do? They start singing. So how do we do that as Christians? How do we do that as recognize that this invitation that Jesus gives, he gives this invitation to his people and he says, come, come to me. Step before me, all who are, who, are, who are weary and all who are burdened. I will give you this rest. And if you think about the slavery, which every one of us is susceptible to, we choose who you're going to be a slave to. I have in my notes, and I don't know where they went because I went off topic a long, or I went off track a long time ago, but in Romans chapter 6, when he talks about this, I was supposed to read this whole passage, and I don't think I did, but I will now because it's good fitting. So in Romans 6, when this idea of slavery, in Romans 6 chapter 15, he says, what then? He just got done saying, you were freed from sin. You are no longer, a, it even says that. It says, for we know in verse 6 that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then he goes, what shall we say? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Don't you know that when you offer, you present yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves? It is a voluntary thing that we do. We voluntarily go to Jesus and we offer ourselves to him. And it says you are either slaves to sin, which leads to what? Death. You are slaves to sin, which leads to death. Or... You are slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then he says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you have been trusted. You have been set free from sin, and now you have become slaves to righteousness. You are still a slave. We can look at Corinthians, we can look at Galatians, and it talks about the heir. You're a slave to this, you're a slave to that, you're a slave to something. But when you're a slave to Jesus, you're actually a free man, a free woman. You're free from the burden and the wearisome law. But when you're in Christ, you're free, but you're a slave to Him for our own good. You still have a yoke, but guess what? That yoke is fit perfectly around your neck, and you choose to put it on. You choose to put the uncomfortable, take the uncomfortable one off and put the comfortable one on that's fit perfectly, individually for you, Liz. Perfectly for you. It fits you perfect. God's like, I got this. Oh, tweak this, grind here, chisel here, boom. That's who you are, and I'm going to use you for my glory. Isn't that awesome? When you really focus and think about what Jesus is saying here. So what are you designed for? 
I mean, honestly, I'm asking you as a friend now, what are you designed for? What are you going to do? What are you going to do to glorify Him? Are you going to allow Him to perfectly form that yoke around you? Or do you want to continue to wear the uncomfortable, doesn't fit so well yoke? This deception, this deception that his yoke is not perfect for you. The deception has been going since the beginning of time. God said, I'll give you all this, everything. Everything, one rule, just one. Just one rule. Don't touch that plant. Don't touch that tree. Don't eat from it or you'll die. One rule. And human pride says, but I want to be wise like God. We took off the yoke he fitted for mankind. And we said, no, I want to be slave to disobedience and I want hardship and I want pain and I want struggle. But Jesus gives us this opportunity. He says, guess what? You can take that one off. You can put mine back on you. You can. I can put, you can put it back on you if you want it. And when he says, it's easy, it's light, it's perfect, it fits so perfect for you. This lie that has come has come because someone doesn't want you to give glory to God. God. Someone doesn't want you to live the life that God has called you to live. I wrote here, a life that will take you to your fullest possible potential is a life in which he created you to be for his glory in joy and happiness. And one of the most positive books in the New Testament is the book of Philippians. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, right after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. He gives you a couple commands here. He says, Paul gives the church of Philippi a couple commands. And if you notice, when this is written, it's written to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. It's written to Christians. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, meaning I think he's there to help us at our hand. I will give the Spirit, John chapter 17. I, will, I have to leave in order to give you the Spirit because when I give you the Spirit, he's going to guide you and walk you through this life and help you and give you conviction and give you guidance along the way. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. So he's saying, go to God. Go to God in prayer. Don't be anxious, but go to him in prayer. Go to him in petition. Give thanks to Him and present your requests to Him. That's the God that we have. That's the God we serve. Present your request to God for what, what we want in line with God's will. Go to Him with thanksgiving. And then it says, and, and I think it's based on these things that He just stated the next verse. I really do. I think when it says, the Lord is near, don't be anxious, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You do these things, and the peace of God, the peace of God, that inward peace, like, it's all good. God's got this. 
I'm his son, I'm his daughter, I'm his child. He's got this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. We can't, I don't get it. It transcends all understanding because you've gone to God with your thanksgiving. You've gone to God with your petitions. You've gone to God with your requests. You've gone to God in prayer. You've rejoiced in the Lord. You've rejoiced in the Lord again. You're not anxious. And then the peace of God which transcends all understanding will do what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. You see, that doesn't sound burdensome to me. That yoke sounds easy. That yoke sounds like it fits well. That yoke sounds light. When we do these things, when we follow His ways, when we come to Jesus, and this is like, I don't want to sound like one of those TV preachers that's come to Jesus. I mean, I'm talking like real genuine, and some other genuine too. I don't have that accent. But this is real what it's saying. The Scriptures are so accurate when it says this. I've experienced it. I've experienced when I didn't have anxiety, when I can go right to God and say, God, I need some help here. I'm just going to trust you in this. It's all you. It's all you, God. I'm going to trust you. You're going to take care of it because you're my father. Because what father gives a son that he loves bad things? Not a good one. And he's a good father. We sing it. He's a good, good father. How's that go tree? Something like that. He's a good father who's given us these gifts and he's given us this, this blessing that we can have. But if you go back to end the message, if you go back to Matthew chapter 11, I'm not trying to hit on a little theological thing here. I'm just going to state it what it says. Verse 28. What do the first three words say? Say it, Robin. Come to me. Come to me. It's incumbent upon us to come to Him. Come to me and I will give you rest. What a promise. It's there. It's, it's, just, it's there. It's right there. We just got, we got to do it. We got to take that step. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Father, your ways are so much higher than ours and even just the ability and the, the right to speak to you and come to you with petitions and to come to you with thanksgiving and to come to you with requests and to come to you with our burdens, our struggles, our worries, our concerns, our anxiety, our anger, our unforgiveness, whatever it is, that we can just come to you and say, Father, we, we love you and we will... You know, what is it, Father, we believe? Help me with my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. You invite us to come to you. You invite us to walk with you. You invite us to uh, take on a, a yoke that is perfectly fitting for us, and it's light, and it's not a burden, but it's a beautiful thing to be enslaved to uh, the creator of the universe. Because when we become a slave to you, Father, your word says that we are an heir. We are adopted. 
We belong to your family. We are your children. What a beautiful promise that you've given us. What a beautiful right that we have to be in your kingdom and to be subservient to the creator of the universe, Father. Thank you so much. Lord, I pray that we give you glory in all we do. Father, if there's somebody this morning that's just really struggling with life, whether it's work, whether it's bills, whether it's medical, whether it's personal, whatever it is, Father, I pray that you put on on their heart that they can come to you and say, Lord, please ease my burden. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do I have communion too? Oh, sorry. Just give me one second to get my my notes here ready and thank you so much, Nate, for that message. It's always encouraging. Um, <clears throat> every time I'm asked to do communion, it just it humbles me. It it truly just brings me to my knees because. It makes me dive into the word just a bit deeper. And <clears throat> I just want to make sure that what I'm sharing is is accurate. And I want to make sure that it's biblical. And, and if it's not, Nate, Steve, please pull me to the side and correct me. Um, <clears throat> this morning, I'm going to be reading a little bit on the Passover on Exodus chapter 12. And the reason why I'm going to be reading on the Passover is because I believe it, it ties in it ties in very well with um, with communion. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, "This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb." according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, 
with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it, do not eat of any any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. <clears throat> Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. <clears throat> So it's of my understanding that the Jewish people continue this celebration and this tradition, and they have been doing so for over 3,500 years. For us Christians, believers in Christ Jesus, we celebrate communion, the breaking of bread with our brothers and sisters, as it represents our Lord's body being broken. We also take of the cup that represents God's blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. I remember Hollis once saying that the entire Bible was interwoven or intertwined um, because all the books are connected and they all support each other. And at the end, it all leads to Jesus. For instance, during the Passover, the lamb that was sacrificed represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the blood spread on the doorframe represents the blood of our Lord being shed for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is much greater than the signs and wonders that took place during Exodus. For we are not just set free from physical slavery, but we are freed from slavery to sin and redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day and Thank you for allowing us to come together to worship you and to praise you, Lord. Please continue to strengthen us, give us courage to be the men and women you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.